welcome to Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC podcast from The Athletic. With the UK still in lockdown and live football a fast-fading memory, we're bringing you a special show this week as we look back on the most significant moment in Chelsea's recent history, the takeover of the club by Roman Abramovich. We'll speak to one of the key players in the deal, examine how it came to fruition and explore the effect it had on the club and English football. This is Straight Out of Cobham. Yes, hello again, listener. It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, in the host chair for our weekly Chelsea chat. Dominic Fifield and Simon Johnson will join us later in the show. But for the first part of today's episode, I'm joined by the Athletics' Liam Toomey. Hi, Liam. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about how Roman Abramovich came to take ownership of Chelsea. And to help us piece together the story, we're joined by Mark Taylor. Hi, Mark. Hi. Uh, and those of you who've read Liam's fabulous piece for the Athletics Unwritten series on how close Chelsea came to losing Stamford Bridge will recognise Mark's name. Uh, for those not up to speed, Mark, tell us a bit about your background and, and how you came to be involved uh, in this takeover. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a corporate lawyer and I acted for Ken and Chelsea when they uh, saved the ground in 1992. Um, I became a director of the company when uh, it got an AIM listing in 1996 and remained a director until we sold to Roman in 2003. So before we get to the takeover then, the Chelsea pitch owners scheme, which ensures the security of Stamford Bridge's Chelsea's home, that was your idea too, wasn't it? Well, it was Ken's idea um, and he used me to implement it um, because you know, he, has, he had a lot of ideas, but he didn't obviously have the legal knowledge that he needed to put it in place but but no it was his idea and I sort of implemented it for him. If we look ahead to uh, to June 2003 when, when the takeover happened then how closely were you involved with with both parties then Pre- presumably you, you were the the kind of main counsel to Ken Bates over over the deal? Well yes of course I acted for the vendors of which Ken was one. Um, I think Ken well, actually, I think Pini Zahavi rang Trevor Birch, who was the chief executive of Chelsea at the time, on a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, Trevor had a meeting with Zahavi the following day, which was the Wednesday. And then Ken uh, met uh, Roman and Eugene Tenenbaum uh, at the Dorchester Hotel on the Thursday. Uh, he rang me Thursday evening and told me what was happening. And I met him on Friday morning and we just discussed whether he definitely wanted to proceed with this. And he said, yes, and we did. Um, I think the key point was that when Ken met uh, Roman and Eugene Tenenbaum, uh, they made it very clear that they wanted to buy control. So it sounds like it was it was all pretty swift then in terms of... It, it was very, very swift. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea had been looking for investors for probably about 18 months and... Um, We'd had a lot of time wasters, uh, as you can probably imagine. And uh, Roman seemed um, viable because, of course, nobody really knew who he was. I mean, obviously, his lawyers did, and but we'd never heard of him. And so actually on the Friday morning, um, his lawyers bought in Forbes magazine from America. And I think he was number 15 on the list, you know, with X billion dollars, which seemed to be quite a good starting point. Mark, how how did you get the sense that uh, Ken felt about the the prospect of selling Chelsea, giving up total control of Chelsea after that initial conversation with 
with Roman? Well, I think I think he has said on record since that he felt that he had done all he could. I mean, in in the other article we spoke about, Liam, you know, he he saved the um, he saved the club from being evicted from Stamford Bridge, and um, of course, by this time we'd redeveloped the whole of Stamford Bridge, so the West Stand was finished. The hotels were there. The sports club was there. Um, and I think that was one of the big reasons that um, Roman liked Chelsea, because although there's obviously been talk about redeveloping the stadium, um, you know, it was in good condition, fairly new with nice facilities. And I think that was very important to him. But I think Ken felt that he had just taken it as far as he could. And so that's why he decided to sell it. What would have happened if, if the deal hadn't gone through? Was it as, as dramatic as people were saying? In terms no, of it wasn't. I mean, I think the, the drama, if you like, was when we played Liverpool in the final game of the season and whoever won or if we drew or won, we would qualify for the Champions League. And if Liverpool had won, they would have qualified for the Champions League. Gronkia. Pass reset, and he's got the shot in, he's got! That's a fabulous goal from Jesper Gronkiel, and his timing is spot on. There's the added insurance. 2-1 Chelsea. And that was a big moment for Chelsea, because by qualifying for the Champions League, you know, you've got guaranteed amount of income. Um, and I think at the time, the cash flows showed that we would actually be debt free by the following April, other than our secured bond issue, which was you know, a long term security. So it wasn't um, we weren't on the verges of bankruptcy, as everybody seems to think we were. How, how did how did both yourself and, and Ken Bates feel once it had concluded? Was, was there a little bit of sort of sadness that, that that era was over? But but I'm guessing you you were pleased with who you sold it to. Well, Ken um, was was initially staying on as as chairman, um, and so he felt. I think he felt really good about it. I obviously felt disappointed because I'd really, you know, I, I'd become a director of Chelsea when I was thirty six, and I was now forty three, and it's difficult to actually find anything as much fun as being a director of a good Premier League football club. I can assure you. But so I was quite sad, but I was glad that the whole uh, you know, the um, future was secure and also uh, that Roman had obviously indicated that he was going to invest substantial sums in the in the club in the playing staff which um, was exciting you mentioned your your role as a director there it's, it's something that that isn't really spoken about publicly much I guess that the role that directors play at football clubs what what was your kind of day to day and and I guess like everybody involved with the football club match days the, the the peak of the week and the thing you look forward to the most well absolutely um I mean what I what I did I set my own firm up in uh 1998 um and my offices were at at Stamford Bridge um and I I wasn't an executive director of Chelsea. I was a non-executive director of Chelsea, but I was very involved in the raising of finance and the development of the of the uh, club uh, or the, of the Chelsea Village. I probably wasn't involved hugely on the football side of things because you know it looks after itself. Really, we used to discuss football every month at the monthly board meeting, but um, the football club pretty well ran itself with Colin Hutchinson and then uh, with Trevor. I remember you saying that 
you didn't actually meet Roman yourself until after the negotiations had been concluded. So what what were your first impressions of him as as an individual and and the kind of sense you got for his plans for Chelsea? He was a very shy individual. It was was my first impression, but he seemed perfectly pleasant. um, And uh, his his team, if you like, were impressive and were talking a very good story, which, of course, came to fruition. with, with the players they bought that summer. Uh, we completed on, on Tuesday night, and uh, obviously about, about 9.30, I think. And um, obviously by that stage, it was too late to transfer the money. And uh, so we completed on Bruce Buck, who was the senior partner at Scadden Arts, who were acting for Roman. We completed on his undertaking to, um, to uh, send me the money the next day. And first of all, my my bank went into all sorts of uh, worry when I when sixty odd million pounds hit my client's account because <laughs> uh, they weren't expecting it. Um, and uh, but then I rang Ken. Ken was in his penthouse at Chelsea at the time, and I rang him. I said, "Hi, hi Ken. I'm just leaving. I'm just ringing to say goodbye." And he said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Oh, I've just got sixty million pounds into my client's account. I'm in a taxi going to the airport, which initially he didn't find very funny, but then he did. So uh, I think it was a it was an interesting time for us all." Just on that that Liverpool game. So the obviously the the general theory is that without that Champions League money, Chelsea would have would have gone to the wall. But but you're saying that. That's not the case, and, and Abramovich would still have taken. I think over. the Champions League money. No, I, I didn't actually say that. I said that the Champions League money meant that we'd be debt free by the following April. It was very, very important that we we won that uh, game against Liverpool or drew it to get into the Champions League because of the additional revenue. I think if we hadn't got in the Champions League, we wouldn't have gone to the wall, but we'd have probably had to sell some players, but not 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 Leeds esque under Ridsdale. Sure. Um, and, and lastly, you mentioned um, Daniel Levy in passing. Were, were you aware of, of of how many, if any at all, uh, other clubs that Abramovich was seriously considering buying? As uh, in- not, not we didn't know that before we did the deal with him. Um, the deal after we did the deal, um, Eugene Tenenbaum said he was flying uh, up with Roman from um, uh, from Far- Farnborough, where he'd landed in a helicopter, and they flew over Craven Cottage. And Roman thought that was Stamford Bridge, uh, and it was you know it was in in July, and um, the pitch was dug up. And he said, "What? You want me to buy that?" And he went, "No, no, no. It's <laughs> it's, it's this one over here." As they go up to Chelsea, which was a slightly different uh, stadium. Fabulous. You mentioned that there were other people that expressed an interest in in either investing in Chelsea or or taking over Chelsea, although quite a few of them were, were yeah. time wasters. Um, there were subsequently stories. Uh, I think claims from from Bernie Eccleston that he and Flavio Briatore uh, would have made a, an offer for Chelsea, but it, it basically Roman got there first. Was there was there anything from your perspective that was there substance to that? I I was never aware of any talks or anything with Bernie Eccleston or anybody else uh, in that in the QPR setup, if you like. Right. So was, there was never a point where. So I don't. I don't. I mean, he may. It's very easy to say you'd like to make an offer when somebody's already bought it. Yeah, of course. But I certainly wasn't aware of it. <laughs> so did, was there ever like? Um, did did anything else ever get close? Really, before Roman took over? No. I mean, I think when we probably bought, would it have been about nineteen ninety seven or so? Um, we were approached by a big fund 
from uh, California who wanted to buy the club Lock, Stock and Barrel. And, and, and it's funny because when they found out about CPO and realised they wouldn't be able to knock the stadium down and build on it, they, they disappeared, uh, which I think shows CPO did, has done its job. Um, but no, we never got, uh, the, probably the, we went to try and do a, uh, a, another securitised bond issue and Trevor and I went to America for a week to try and sell it. And we were doing very well on selling it until we were having a meeting with teachers, which is a huge pension fund in New York at the exact moment that Leeds United's bond went unrated, um, which and teachers own most of it. And we were shown, uh, shown the door then, because I think that it once bitten, they didn't want to try and try and know it. So they just didn't want to proceed after that. But that was a possibility that we we probably would have been able to do that if we'd waited a bit. Mark, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Uh, no problem at all. Simon Johnson and Dominic Fifield are in the house and they were listening to Mark there. Uh, Simon, that was fascinating insight that Mark gave us. Certainly was, Matt. Um, I, I particularly appreciated the sort of lowdown of how the takeover materialised. That There's been a number of stories surrounding it in terms of Roman in a, in a helicopter flying over London and, and the extent particularly of his um, interest in Tottenham. Um, and I found that very interesting that he confirmed that there were... Um, talks between Roman and Daniel Levy uh, before that he actually met with Chelsea and that um, I wonder how Spurs fans will be um, reacting to the news that uh, if uh, if Daniel had actually agreed to selling majority stake then who would have known what um, Tottenham would have become over the last decade or so so yeah fantastic detail yeah, we had um, questions on Twitter actually from Matt and May asking about the uh, the rumours of Abramovich being interested in Spurs. So you got your answer there, guys. Um, Dom, what were your initial feelings when the when the takeover was announced? I remember it was the the first item on News at Ten that night. That's how big of a deal it was. When it when it got announced, I, th- I suppose everybody was just intrigued um, as to to what Roman Abramovich might bring to English football. It was it was really for me. I mean, I was a I was a football reporter in the northwest at the time, and I was basically at a, covering Liverpool, who were who were licking their wounds uh, on the on the back of the uh, the game at Stamford Bridge on the final day of the afternoon, which effectively condemned Liverpool to another season outside the Champions League. Um, and it was it was when they started spending the money, uh, and and we suddenly realised that whoa, these these guys really do mean business now, and they're 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 muscling their way into. Well, into Manchester United territory in terms of the spending, um, you know, money was suddenly no object for them. And, uh, you know, from afar, I, I don't think I really appreciated at the time the, the state of play at Chelsea and how much maybe it hinged upon that last that last game against Liverpool. To hear, to hear Mark say that players would have been sold uh, and that Chelsea's future would have looked very, very different. Um, was 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 interesting and a great insight but I just I mean after that it just became a procession I mean every day you turn on the television there'd be two new players joining Chelsea for for mammoth huge sums of money back then I remember the day that Joe Cole and Juan Sebastian Veron joined for what combined about 20 million 21 million pounds and it was just whoa they're just blowing everybody out of the water here there's no competing with this and overnight they they felt as if they were transformed into Premier League title challengers yeah, I mean, they had almost an unprecedented financial edge, really, because, you know, it, it seems so alien now when we look at the the age of F, FFP that we're in 
and the idea that clubs accounts actually need to to vaguely balance I mean that was that wasn't a requirement <laughs> when Abramovich came into Chelsea he could unleash the full force of his personal wealth and there were no um there were no oil states owning football clubs Abramovich was as rich as it got and it was a real real um transformational moment and I think you could also see that in the reaction of Sir Alex Ferguson and Manchester United because they were really not pleased to see the the sums that that, that Chelsea were throwing out for players week after week and of course Chelsea ended up taking a couple of players off them in that summer and over the next couple of years I mean Ian Robin comes to mind as probably the most classic example but Chelsea was suddenly at the top of the of the transfer food chain in a way that obviously they haven't been in the last sort of five six years they they had a position of supremacy that that they they've probably never had before or since if we look at Roman Abramovich a bit more closely, uh, Simon, kind of the polar opposite to, to the man who he succeeded in, in Ken Bates. As a journalist, I guess you'd like Abramovich to be a bit more open to publicity, but but do you think it's actually in the best interest of the club that he's not? Oh, undoubtedly for the club, yeah, <laughs> because um, he gets to uh, avoid a lot of awkward questions and there's a lot of positive questions that could also be asked about how well the club has, has uh, done in his tenure, but... There's also a lot of questions that he'd clearly want to avoid. And number one, perhaps right now, would be his level of commitment to the club and the stadium project and what's happened to that. But yeah, he is a, a mysterious figure. Um, there's no doubt, certainly in for, for many of the years he's been there, that he, he's an absolute football fan. There's no denying that. Um, many times he, he was at games when he used to attend the camera would always pan to him up in his box and he'd be celebrating as wildly as, as many of the uh, sort of genuine football fans around the place. So he certainly had a real love affair with Chelsea. I, I've only had one close interaction with him um, since he arrived in 2003 and it, was, and it was the opening of the new training ground at Cobham and there was a, a fancy marquee erected and you can just sort of see it now, all dignitaries plus media <laughs> we're we're not dignitaries um and um we're all sipping away on on champagne etc um and uh we're just sort of making small talk and suddenly i turn around and and roman's just appeared from nowhere um and he he shakes everyone by the hand um but if you actually tried to all he said to us was like a, a quick hello and then he quickly uh, walked away, you know, wasn't interested in any small talk, but um, certainly someone that was very difficult to um, get anywhere close to, to to even have a chat with. I think he's only given one interview, um, and that was to the BBC shortly after he took over, um, but he's never given any of us the, the delight of an interview, which would definitely make big headlines if he were to do so. We had a back page story um, after his his first first victory, Premier League victory, at that, which was at Anfield. Um, and Veron and Hasselbank scored Chelsea's goals that day. And I don't remember, the in the old main stand at Anfield, the, the press box was right next to the director's box. And they even had to go through the same sort of tunnel to get to get out there into, into the open. And you're basically sitting with a small wall between you and them, but you could lean over and talk to people closest to you. And, and the, the away club's dignitaries actually sat in the five or six seats immediately next to this little wall and Roman was amongst them watching his his team play for the Premier League for the first time and they, they obviously won with this late goal 
and the uh, very intrepid reporter from the Daily Mail, on behalf of the pack uh, on Merseyside, took it upon himself to, to to lean over the wall and try and grab a word with Roman Abramovich as this, as Chelsea's away fans were celebrating and the and the board were up and applauding and. Uh, before he even got the question out, about three or four security staff <laughs> appeared from nowhere and descended upon him, poor, poor John Edwards from the Daily Mail. He did actually claim to get a quote from Roman saying how happy he was <laughs> and it did make the back pages on that Monday morning. But it was yeah, an indication of, of how secretive the, the man would be and how he would always be surrounded by security staff. A lot of them ex-SAS. Okay, well, that's been a fascinating insight into what was such a crucial event in the history of Chelsea Football Club. Okay, before we go today, just time to meet another cult hero. For this week's cult hero, we've chosen a man who played a big role in the takeover, full marks listener, if you've guessed Jesper Gronkjaer. It was Gronkjaer's winning goal against Liverpool on the last day of the 0-2-0-3 season that helped Chelsea qualify for the Champions League at the Reds' expense. Of course, they would have done so had they drawn the game, but that just made the closing stages of it a little bit easier for everybody in blue to bear. Uh, Gronkjaer joined Chelsea from Ajax in October of 2000 for £7.8 million, played 119 times, scoring just 11 goals, uh, though most people just remember that one. Didn't win any trophies during his four seasons at the club, but uh, as we know, fourth place is a trophy to some and he played a part in winning that. Um, Liam, a bit underwhelming, I thought, when I look back at his Chelsea career as a whole. Is that is that fair? Is that harsh? No, I think it's broadly fair. Uh, he was quite a frustrating player, I think, for a lot of Chelsea fans to watch because my memory of him was that he he was just this lightning-paced winger. Apparently, he'd been told in his youth that he could easily have been a sprinter. Obviously, ended up in, in football instead. And whenever he decided to knock the ball beyond a fullback, um, he had the beating of anyone, maybe in the world, in that position. He was so fast from a standing start that he could, he could get to the byline against anyone. and But when he did, <laughs> the quality of the delivery was, was not... Um, not always what you would like it to be and and more than that um he didn't seem to run at his defender as often as he probably should have done given what uh, given what a trump card he had in in his raw speed um so i think he you know he he had moments where he looked like an absolutely devastating attacking weapon uh and a and a kind of riddle that the other team couldn't solve but he was he was often um an issue for Chelsea as well because they didn't quite know what they would get from him from one week to the next and uh, it's a shame because if you look in terms of pure talent I think he had the ability to be a really really special player for Chelsea but it it didn't quite it didn't quite reach those heights although of course he does have that goal which everyone remembers even if as you mentioned its significance is is slightly overplayed in terms of the importance for Chelsea getting Champions League football Obviously, Dom, there were world-class players at Chelsea before the Abramovich era, but but was Gronkjaer kind of emblematic of, of the sort of average Chelsea signing of this time, a good European player, if not an elite one? Yeah, possibly. Uh, that's, that's probably a fair assessment. But that, that's just where pretty much every club in the country, bar Manchester United, was at, though. I mean, that, that and Arsenal, of course, were were a strong force to be reckoned with at that, in that in that period. It was... You were sort of that. There was a group of clubs that had aspirations to to reach European competition, but they were probably buying a different caliber of player, and they would have bought Gronkia thinking there's potential there, which arguably he didn't 
necessarily realize i, I remember it's funny because I, I went to when when ancelotti's chelsea went to copenhagen to play fc copenhagen in the champions league it would have been 2011 i think for the coldest game of football i've ever attended in, in my life <laughs> gronkiel was playing for copenhagen at the time and he, he obviously he met a few of us a couple of weeks prior to the, the tie when england played over there as well and uh, and talked about his his chelsea career and he's almost sort of embellished it in his own mind about how how well he'd done even on that goal he, that goal against liverpool he 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 told us that two or three of us there. He told us he'd beaten three or four defenders to score that goal. You actually look at the footage. He just beats John Arnarisa, and he's got three <laughs> names. But I mean, that's not three. That's not three defenders. Um, but it, it, that sort of summed him up. It was, you know, there was there was this potential there. He 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 had. He looked at him in that explosive pace that Liam mentions. He he could have been a world beater, but there was just a little thing missing, and and that's really what the Abramovich billions did for Chelsea they didn't have to buy players with that little bit missing they could buy pedigree and and almost the finished article in the years to come and it made such a massive difference Simon what are your memories of uh, Gronkia the player well my memory kind of uh, is in keeping with um, what Liam already mentioned about his uh, inability to cross a football it seemed but (laughs) this was an occasion where it worked in Chelsea's favour one of his last goals for the club was in the Champions League semi-final against Monaco and he opened the scoring by cutting inside and delivering a cross which went all the way into the top corner and of course he wheels away in great celebration but uh, and everyone was lost in the fact that Chelsea had taken the lead but kind of um, the fact that he'd completely mishit this cross was kind of uh, <laughs> went under the radar because no one cared because it went into the goal but it, in a way it sort of summed, summed him up really that... Uh, uh, it was a rare occasion where a mishit cross or worked in Chelsea's favour. I, I just think, I also remember one of his first games, it was televised on the BBC, I think, um, an FA Cup tie at Gillingham, and he absolutely destroyed them with his pace. And he just thought, oh, Chelsea have really signed a player that, that opponents are going to be scared of. Now, of course, Gillingham were lower league opposition, so no one was getting too carried away, but he, he generally sort of saw a guy that that perhaps could inject a lot of fear factor in this Chelsea side. But unfortunately, he flattered to deceive. And you sort of wonder whether he had the personality. He's quite a quiet, spoken chap. And whether he quite had the personality to to thrive at the very highest level. He might be quietly spoken, but he uh, works for Danish TV now. So he's still in and around the game (laughs) broadcasting. And he's, he's actually quite often... Uh, on the row in front of me at the top of the east stand in the gantry. So next time I'm going to ask him to uh, describe that goal against Liverpool in detail whilst I look at it on YouTube and, and we'll see how much he embellishes there. Uh, that's Jesper Gronkiar, this week's cult hero. Another one, same time next week. OK, that's just about it for today. Uh, in terms of what you've got coming up this week, Liam, you've got a, a piece on Mateo Kovacic, which is up on The Athletic for people to read now. Yes, I do. It's, um, we've given him the big profile treatment, so I've gone back and looked at his, his journey all the way from, from moving to Switzerland, from Switzerland to, to Croatia as a child, uh, his his path through Dinamo's academy and and his time at Inter, then Real Madrid towards Chelsea. I mean, he's only 25, but it feels like he's had an entire career. And he's also won enough um, for for most players' full careers. He, he, you still get the sense with Kovacic that his best years are ahead of him. And, and there have been signs, I think, in recent months that, that those best moments could come at Chelsea. So I think he's an exciting player and 
and it was a piece that I really enjoyed researching and writing. Uh, Simon, you're back from your holiday with a, albeit a disappointing tan. What's on your agenda work-wise <laughs> this week? Um, yeah, working on a couple of pieces, not sure which one's going to come out first. Um, but following on from uh, a big joint read on Juan Sebastian Veron, um, we're now stepping it up onto another Chelsea success story, uh, Andrei Shevchenko. Uh, we're going to be hoping to... Um, tell his story of um, that glorious time at Chelsea where he was certainly not value for money. Um, um, but we're also, me and Liam, are going to be uh, writing a piece about what seems to be the end of Chelsea's love affair with Brazilians. Uh, of course, William, in light of William's comments about um, once again sort of saying that a new contract looks unlikely. Um, Chelsea have had a lot of Brazilians over the years, but it looks like William's departure may see the end of um, Chelsea's uh, love affair with Brazilians. So we're going to be reflecting on that. Interesting. Um, Dom, I know you've been Crystal Palace focused of late. Are you doing anything more broadly on the, the London football scene this week? Uh, I'm going to chip in, hopefully, with Simon's piece on, on Sheva. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing his uh, assassination of Keir Jirabchin in the Brazilian piece. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, they'll be busy. Uh, they'll, they'll lots of. I'm going to try and get something newsy this week, uh, fingers crossed, because... Uh, you know, stuff is still happening out there. There's no live football, but uh, there's plenty of stuff still going on. Sounds good. Uh, remember, subscribers to The Athletic can get an ad-free version of this and all The Athletic's many other fine podcasts by listening through the app. Until next week, from Liam, from Simon, from Dom and from me, thanks for listening. Stay safe and inside and we'll catch you down the road. Mm-hmm.